You heard our text in Acts chapter 1, just our second sermon in our series in the book of Acts, which we have themed as the advance of the kingdom, the advance of the kingdom. And this morning, I want us to consider the commission to advance. Jesus, authority exercised in a commission to his disciples to advance the kingdom. In our text today, we join the disciples on the Mount of Olives, overlooking Jerusalem. They have a big question for Jesus about the kingdom, and he has even a bigger answer than they were expecting. Here's what I want us to think on this morning, a simple sentence as our big idea, Jesus commissions the advance of the kingdom. We hear this even more clearly in Matthew's account when Jesus himself says, all authority is given to me, you go and be my witnesses. We understand the commission following this line of authority. God the Father, we could read of it in Acts chapter 2, telling the Son that he will give success to the kingdom and make all of the enemies of Jesus his footstool. The Son taking up that authority now is telling his disciples, go in my authority, go in my power and proclaim the name that is above every name the only name under heaven by which men must be saved. This is the gospel, Jesus the Christ. Last time we considered the beginning paragraph in the book of Acts, it gave us a foundation of the disciples' preparation, 40 days of a crash course to solidify what they had heard for three years before that and to solidify everything they had learned in their lifetime from the Old Testament scriptures that pointed to this king and his kingdom. And now that 40 days has come to a conclusion and Jesus gathers them on the Mount of Olives. And before Jesus speaks to them, they have this question that they want an answer to. And they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? We know verse 8 well, the language of commission. So remembering that Jesus commissions the advance of the kingdom, I want to break down that simple sentence and start by making sure we understand what is meant by the kingdom because it is apparent in our text that the disciples did not, at least not fully understand the kingdom. Their question is, Lord, okay, is it, is it now? Now can we get on with the kingdom? Will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Those key words, restore and Israel, help us see that the disciples, at the very least, had too narrow of a perspective of the kingdom, if not just a blatant misunderstanding of it. They were looking for an earthly kingdom, 
reminiscent of the glory days of David or Solomon. So they chose the language not establish, but will you restore the kingdom? Because as good little Jewish boys, they had grown up hearing the stories of the glory of Israel when it was the known world power of the day. King David, 40 years of victory. King Solomon, 40 years of majesty. King Uzziah, 40 years of expansion and ingenuity. They, they, they wanted those glory days because that's what they heard when Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. They heard, yes, we know about kingdom from our past. Will you restore the kingdom, and they say, to Israel? But here, at best, they are neglecting much of what Isaiah and other prophets had predicted that when the Messiah comes, his kingdom would not only be for the Jewish people, but it is going to throw the door open to the Gentiles as well. But these guys are nationalists at heart. Before we throw our stones at them, we have to recognize that even in the last few years, we have seen the same kind of confusion between Christianity and nationalism. What is Christianity? Is it American Christianity or is it biblical Christianity? So we can understand how the the ideas get merged in our minds when we're living in a place and we're living as Christians in a place, in a place that is generally Christian, thinking of their place in Israel and our place in America, and yet trying to understand what Jesus is saying when he's talking about success of the kingdom. In Luke 24, we hear the account of those two disciples on the road to Emmaus on resurrection morning. They didn't stay around long enough to know Jesus had risen from the dead. And so they're going back, and Jesus joins them. They don't know it's him. And one of the things they say to Jesus is this, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Well, theologically, we know that Jesus had done that already. He had died as the perfect substitute on the cross. At that very moment, he's risen from the dead. Redemption's work has been accomplished, but their idea of redeeming Israel was to restore them to a physical kingdom on earth. They had hoped for something more. And by looking with their eyes to see a physical kingdom, they had missed the dawning of the success of the kingdom of God in Christ at Calvary, where Colossians says he made a spectacle of all his enemies. So what should we know about the kingdom so that we are clear about our commission to advance the kingdom. Number one, we should be clear about the nature of the kingdom. You see, unlike the disciples thinking of restoring a kingdom like that of David or Solomon, the nature of the kingdom Jesus was speaking of is spiritual. This is a spiritual or a heavenly kingdom. That's why the gospel, especially in Matthew, refers to the kingdom of heaven. The other gospels, the kingdom of God. 
because they want us to use those two words as a reference that lifts us from this temporal plane on earth to heaven, to the dwelling place of God. In Luke 17, verse 20, we read of an encounter with Jesus and the Pharisees. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Jesus had been teaching about the kingdom. His disciples are confused by it and hoping it meant a physical kingdom. Let's throw off Roman rule and return to the glory days of Israel. Even Jesus' antagonists are now confused by this. And they say, what are you talking about with this kingdom? When are we going to see it? When are you going to rule in a dominant way like Caesar does? And Jesus says, you can't observe the kingdom. Now, he's not saying you can't see the fruit of the kingdom. Of course you can. That's the good works that we do that bring glory to God. But he's saying you're not going to go to a building and see a throne. You're not going to be able to say, oh, here it is. We made a pilgrimage to it. Or it's over there a few miles. No, he said the kingdom is within you. Remember, Jesus' announcement to the world of his ministry was in the language of the kingdom of God is at hand. So we have to make sure in our minds that we are thinking of kingdom language as spiritual in nature. Remember our definition that we gave last time of the kingdom. It is the rule of God. Wherever God rules, that's where his kingdom is. And whenever God chooses to rule in such a way that it's physically demonstrable, then we're going to see more visibly the kingdom of God. So when God chose to rule through his people Israel, we see Israel rise to be a world power, and that's an illustration of God's rule. But let me ask you, when the Israelites are taken into captivity and the city is destroyed and the temple is destroyed, was God still on the throne? And of course, the answer is yes. So at times, we see the rule of God more clearly. But the rule of God, the kingdom of God, is, is always present. And certainly, now it is advancing through his visible church. The nature of the kingdom is spiritual. But secondly, we should understand the scope of the kingdom. The scope of the kingdom, because the disciples asked, when will you restore the kingdom to Israel? And of course, you've heard the text read. You realize Jesus never really answers their question, which was a question of timing. He moves on, but in his answer, he's helping us understand the scope of the kingdom, that being it is universal. It is universal. It's not national. Jesus is no longer speaking words for national Israel, saying, I will build a kingdom of Jews. No, he's speaking of a universal kingdom. Whoever welcomes the rule of God is entering the kingdom. That's why all the parables about the kingdom. That's why 
entering the kingdom is common in Jesus' teaching because this isn't about being born a Jew. It's, being about, it's about being born again by faith in Christ. Jesus was announcing a kingdom far more broad than the disciples were grasping. This is why in so many of the New Testament letters, there's, there's this language of the gospel for the whole world. Because the Jewish mind can't wrap their heads around those Gentiles who they referred to as dogs being fit for sitting at the table with the children of God. This Jew-Gentile divide was massively significant. I would venture to say far greater than the divide of what we think of as a black and white racial divide and a terrifying history in our nation. But that gives us a taste of the kind of division and hate that existed between Jew and Gentile. So much so that much of the Ephesian letter in chapter 2, where it magnifies we're saved by grace, the application of that is to the racial divide of the day. God has broken down the wall of partition. And you often hear that preached as between us and him, but he's talking about Jew and Gentile. That all will become one family by faith in Christ. Paul's driving home this point so that these Jewish believers will more and more come to understand this gospel is for the nations. The scope of this kingdom is universal. And this is why Paul in the New Testament has to work at redefining the term Israel. I want you to listen to Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For all who are descended from Israel, or excuse me, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Just because you identify by your genetic makeup as a Jew, as a Israelite, doesn't mean you're truly of Israel. By faith, the believing ones. He goes on to say, And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. His point is, just because you're a national Israelite doesn't mean God sees you as Israel, the people of God. Just because you're born into an Israelite family doesn't mean you're born a Christian, we would say. Not all Israel is Israel. Clearly, Paul is saying he is redefining what Israel means. He expands on this in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 3, beginning in verse 28. You, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. 
Paul is making the point to the Galatians that to be a son of Abraham is to believe. He is no longer concerned with your physical lineage, who your parents and grandparents were. It doesn't matter if you can trace your lineage back to Abraham. That does not mean you are going to heaven. That's not the Israel that matters anymore. What matters is, are you a son of promise? Not physical descent, but promise. Do you believe the promise of God? You see, the kingdom of God, the family of God, is no longer just Jewish people, but it is all people. And Revelation makes it clear with an exclamation point that the kingdom of God in heaven will be made up of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The kingdom is universal. And if this kind of Bible truth, if this gospel was understood in our nation, we would have the foundation for all the conversations that are being had and need to be had about racial conflict and divide. We have Bible answers to these questions. And so come to the scriptures and speak boldly about how God speaks regarding the nations, the differences of people groups. We have the authority to do that. We have the hope to do that. For it's this gospel, this truth of Jesus that remedies all those problems. The scope of the kingdom is universal. And finally, we should be clear about the time of the kingdom, which in Acts was what the disciples were getting at. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? So when is the kingdom coming? When is the kingdom? The answer is the kingdom is now. And then. The kingdom is now and then. How do we understand the time of the kingdom by saying it's both now and then? Well, again, definitions, what is the kingdom? You know it. It's the rule of God. Jesus is telling his disciples the kingdom is now. God rules in you, and as you proclaim the name of Christ, others can yield to the lordship of Christ, his rule, and enter the kingdom. But Jesus also heard what they were asking. They were asking about seeing a kingdom with their eyes, seeing Jesus triumph over his enemies, wicked enemies like the Roman Empire. They wanted vindication. They wanted righteousness exalted. When does all that happen? And the answer is now and then. Because a day is coming when Jesus says all of that kind of visible, tangible, experiential vindication, triumph, judgment, all of that will happen. But not now. Now the kingdom advances in another way. But the kingdom now advancing in the rule of the hearts of his people, that kingdom will give way to the kingdom then when Jesus makes his rule known to all humanity. 
So the kingdom is now and then. Theologically, it's often referred to as already the kingdom and not yet the kingdom. Already some aspects of it, the spiritual reality of God's rule in the hearts of people as they're converted one by one by the power of the Spirit, and not yet because he has not made all his enemies his footstool. Not yet because he hasn't manifested the fullness of his dominance over all those who are in unbelief. Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He reminds us that the kingdom is now. He's accomplishing his pleasure. And the kingdom is then, because he has told us what his pleasure and will will be. The vindication of his people and the judgment of the wicked. Read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. So the disciples heard about both kingdoms. First, they heard about the then. That's verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus is saying, You're not all wrong. There is something to come that you're longing for, and that's okay. That's the kingdom then. That's rooted in God's authority and God's knowledge. But you don't need to know the times and the seasons. Then he gives that word of contrast that begins verse 8. But while you won't receive information about the times and seasons of the then, you will receive something for now. You will receive power. So Jesus addresses the then, you don't need any more information about it. No, it's coming. What you need to focus on is the kingdom now. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is the transition from curiosity, Lord, when will all this kingdom stuff happen to commission? From the curiosity of kingdom then to the commission for kingdom now. And in this well-known text of commission in verse 8, we come to understand what advance looks like in the kingdom. Oh yes, the rest of the book of Acts is going to unfold what it looks like, but in this one verse, we understand kingdom advance. So having understood kingdom, let's now make sure we understand advance from this familiar text in verse 8. With the help of three questions, we should be able to both understand and you should be able to articulate the theme of the book of Acts from this verse. How does the kingdom advance? What does the text say? You will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. I can remember as a kid having my timeline off a little bit because I grew up with, you will receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. So it felt like you'd receive power and after that the Holy Spirit would come. After that was just a little bit older English. So after is sufficient. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit is poured out. Or after the Holy Spirit is poured out, you'll be powerful. 
So you receive power, the power of the Spirit. When you read Isaiah's prophecies, you hear of this power that God would put on his people. One of them, Isaiah 32, beginning in verse 15, where Jesus, or God through the prophet Isaiah says, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness. Righteousness abide in the fruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be peace. The result of righteousness will be quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. All this language of Peace and rest. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has been poured out. And now there is this inner peace, inner security, and inner power that is ours. You see, up to this point, this band of disciples hardly seemed like the crowd that is going to plant churches, that is going to advance a cause, that will defend the faith, die as martyrs, and for all practical purposes, will have spread the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth. They accomplished the commission in one generation. They don't look like a crowd capable of doing that. Huddled in the upper room, scared every time the door rattles that somebody's going to get them. So what happened? It's right there in our text. When the Holy Spirit is poured out. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power. In our spiritual journey, which involves the valleys, the battlefields with temptation and sin, the blessings of success and prosperity, we need to recognize that we are living the Christian life, we are on this pilgrim journey and we are doing it by the Spirit's power. You are, you are speaking heresy when you say things like, well, I just can't get victory over this. That's not true. That's not true in any possible way. What is true is you have the Holy Spirit's power, but you won't get victory over those things. You cannot say, based on this text, I can't, if it's something that God has said, do this. You can. Be holy. I can't speak, Moses said. Well, that wasn't true. Read the book of Acts and the account of Moses. He was the most learned man in the world. He benefited from all the, the teaching of Egypt and was probably an expert orator. We, we think we can hide behind some I can't as if God hasn't enabled us to be a witness in the workplace or to your neighbor or to that family member. Listen, I'm not saying this comes with great ease to one and all alike. I'm just saying to one and all alike as believers, you have the Holy Spirit's power. So stop denying this Familiar text by saying things like, I just can't. How does the kingdom advance? 
It is not through some miraculous displays of power, but through what we could, I guess, technically describe as miraculous, the Holy Spirit's power, but God frames that in the context of ordinary. That's the whole point of Pentecost. That unlike the Old Testament where the Spirit was poured out for a special occasion on a special person, His Spirit would be poured out on all. So what we might tend to describe as miraculous power, it's divine, it's godly power, but it's not miraculous, it's common, it's ordinary. It's on every believer. Claim that power this week. Don't don't click on those images this week. Don't let anger well up and spill out. Don't do it. Don't give in to laziness when you could have demonstrated love. Don't do it. You have the power to do what is right. So take this language of the power of the Holy Spirit and overlay it with Romans chapter 6 and dive into a week of yielding yourself as a servant of righteousness because you can. How? By the Spirit's power. What? What is the job description of this advance of the kingdom? It's in this simple word, witnesses. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. John 15 and verse 26, Jesus says, When the Helper comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Jesus said the pouring out of the Spirit will be to accomplish a witness to Christ. That's what the Spirit does. So if the Spirit is in you, you cannot help but witness. It's what the Spirit does. It's why he was poured out. A linguistic note here. In the older English of that King James era, which is not really old English, it's more of an early modern English because we can read it and understand it. But the, the verb to wit was that older English expression of our word to know. Rarely will you hear somebody use the expression to wit in this day and age. And it's usually used in a way to prove that you know. So the use of to wit in modern English would be to say, namely, such and such, or to wit, such and such. It's proving that I know. But the original word is is to know. So a witness was a knower. It was somebody who knew something. They were knowledgeable. They were well-learned. They'd seen a lot in their lifetime. So that was the idea of wit. You may have heard the insult, uh, dim wit, right? Well, you're like, yeah, I I know who you're talking about. I just didn't know what it meant, really. Uh, Well, it's based on that word to wit. It it, it would be like, I don't know, most of the words for somebody who's not real knowledgeable or kind of harsh, we might think of, an idiot or something. Uh, And children, you know, don't use these words at home. Uh, 
but they have meanings. And so dim wit wasn't like just a harsh insult. It was just, it was literally an observation that's somebody not well learned. Uh, their, their knowledge, their wit was, was low or dim. So witness, yes, the Greek word is the word martyr, which even that evolved into they gave their lives because they knew something. But the word is just to witness, to speak to what you know. There's no, there's no inherent calling in the word. There's, there, there's not some like job description that's only for certain people who surrender to be a witness to the cause. No, Jesus says, this is what you will be. It's not something you volunteer for, and it's not something you cast off or set aside and say, that's not for me. Because the word is to know. And Jesus says, you know something. For the last 40 days, he's driven it home to them. Jesus, son of God. Jesus, holy. Jesus, crucified for sinners. Jesus, risen from the dead. They know something now. And they cannot escape that they are witnesses. They are knowers of truth. Jesus is now adding the Holy Spirit's power to that knowledge so that they can advance the kingdom by going wherever God sends them to tell what they know. Listen, in our culture wars, you don't have to know all the arguments and all the implications of cultural and societal problems. You don't have to have every physical explanation to argue against transgenderism. You don't have to have every argument and and biblical case for reparations or no reparations. You can start in any conversation with what you know. And that word for know is the Bible use of it. It's a full, immersive, experiential knowledge. What do you know about Jesus? What has he done for you? What was your life before you met him? And what has he done since? Start there. Start with the hope that is within you. And obviously, I think we should study the scriptures and be able to converse with our societal antagonists about all these other issues. But ultimately, we're not trying to convert them to binary genderism. We're not trying to convert them to our views on racial tension. We're trying to convert them to faith in Jesus. He can fix the rest of their bad thinking. But they need heart change. They need to hear what Jesus has done at Calvary. And so we are just witnesses. We are knowers of truth. And we're going to make that truth known. We don't advance the kingdom by wealth by enacting laws or winning some kind of popular moral majority that can influence the masses. We can't export cultural Christianity to other nations of the world. A mistake in the missions movement 100 years ago, let's, let's make them all have white shirts and ties on and, and read from our Bible. No, that's not how the kingdom advances. The kingdom advances by the rule of God in the heart. And so tell what you know about the rule of God in your heart. Final question is where? Where does this advance happen? 
The language of the text answers it this way. In Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. But I want to summarize that as everywhere. Because not every disciple stays in Jerusalem. Not every disciple needs to go to Judea or Samaria. Not every disciple goes to the end of the earth. But the point is, wherever God takes you, you are still that knower of truth. Therefore, you are still a witness. I don't need to call you to go to what we would think of as the mission field, some faraway ends of the earth place. God can do that. I need to point you to the text that says, everywhere a Christian can be is the place where he is to be a witness. You see, this language to the end of the earth is the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that a descendant of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, would bless all nations. So even the father of the Jews was given a promise that was universal in its nature. Isaiah 49, the Lord speaking of his specific use for the people of Israel, says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah, 700 years before this Mount of Olives conversation of Jesus and his disciples, said that God was going to do something unique amongst the Jewish people that would make them a light to the nations. So John says, Jesus came to his own. He was doing something among the Jewish people. Paul says to the, in Romans, through the Israelites came the promises. Through the Israelites came the Messiah. Through the Israelites come salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus. It's just that all that came through Israel to the nations. And so the This commission, in this language, verse 8, really structures the rest of the book of Acts. In chapters 2 through 7, we're going to see the church in Jerusalem. This fledgling church getting their legs under them like a newborn horse, you know, scrawny little legs trying to stand up straight. Verses 8 to 12, we're going to see the church scattered out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and to Antioch in the north. And then verses 13 to 28, the missionary journeys will begin, and we'll see the church advancing to the ends of the earth. By having a home and a job here in the Kansas City metro, you're saying, God wants me at this end of the earth to fulfill this commission. You can have confidence in that. You don't need to feel any guilt that, oh, I saw the picture of the farmers up on the screen and they're living in Cambodia with bugs and tarantulas and stuff. That's God's business. If he wants them there, they go there. If he wants you here, stay here. The point of the text is not everyone goes everywhere. It's that God puts Christians everywhere and they are his witnesses. They know what he's capable of. 
They know what he's done. And they share the good news wherever they are. The kingdom advances by the power of the Holy Spirit through witnesses throughout the whole world. So Jesus commissions the advance of the kingdom. We know what the kingdom is. We understand how it will advance. Let me just remind you of the giver of this commission. Help us to understand the kingdom's king. And only from this text, there's much we could understand about the kingdom's king, but how does this text conclude that would make us think about our king? First, we read after this commission that as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Jesus is taken to heaven. Verse 11 tells us. He's taken to heaven. There's there's much that could be studied here. You could study taken up and how that's used in the scriptures, Old Testament. You can think of some unique experiences with Enoch or the prophet Elijah. Um, And now this, this taking up of Jesus. And he's in a cloud. Well, how has a cloud been used to communicate God's glory? Again, tabernacle, temple, Old Testament, New Testament. He's taken up, and he's taken up out of their sight. Introducing the church to this era of no Jesus present. No physical presence of the king, but an invisible presence of the spirit, which reminds us that we walk by faith and not sight. We think it would be a luxury to have sight like they did, to have Jesus walk among us and teach us. But that's a misunderstanding of Jesus' words that he would send another just like him that would live within us to guide us into truth and to be everything that we need. We don't need Jesus bodily present among us. We have the spirit of Jesus in us. So Jesus is taken to heaven. Remember this as you are called to be a witness. As we tell what we know about Jesus, we know this, he is ruling from the throne of heaven. So when you're in that circumstance and being bold for Christ seems so daunting, remember this. Jesus was taken to heaven, and chapter 2 will make it clear, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling, rejoicing that his name is being made known by you in that conversation with neighbor, friend, family, co-worker. He's taken to heaven. And number two, the text is clear. That king that's now ruling in heaven is coming again. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Plenty of emphasis on heaven. Our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. But there's the reminder that this Jesus taken up is coming back. He's coming again. That's hope for the harassed and persecuted church. That's hope for the church that feels to be the minority. That's hope for the individual Christian who may very well be the minority in his place of work, in his family. This king is coming again. And there's a sense of motivation here, a sense of urgency. 
we might, we might say the clock has started ticking. Men of Galilee, why, why are you standing there gazing up into heaven? It's a gentle rebuke. I don't think it's harsh. If you had walked with Jesus and just saw him rise up in a cloud, you'd probably be caught off guard too and be staring. The point isn't, what are you guys looking at? The point is, let's look at something else, though. Let's look at this commission that you have. Let's look at what's coming next, this monumental advance of the kingdom, because that's what Jesus had told you about. Our text ends essentially with the coach's call to, let's get to it. It's almost like you had the huddle right before the game. Everybody puts their hands in, and it's like, it's time to play. Let's go. Let's put it all into practice. Everything we've worked on, it's time. Three years of being with Jesus, 40 days crash course. You just heard what he said in this, this commission, his last words to you. All right, here we go. Let's do this. There's not going to be any fresh insights about kingdom about discerning the times or the seasons. No modern events will clarify what Jesus said here. You don't need a newspaper to understand the Great Commission. Jesus is clear. I'm not answering your question, guys. Uh, you, you don't know, need to know the times or the seasons. You don't, know, you don't need to know if Russia's invasion of the Ukraine is a sign of the end. None of that adds anything to what Jesus said. What Jesus said is, put the sky gazing out of your minds and focus on power that's in you to testify to who Jesus is and what he can do for sinners. That's our commission. With the Spirit's power, tell what you know, where God has put you, until Jesus shows up. That's our task. That's the invitation even to this sermon as we go from this place this week. May God help us to be faithful. Heavenly Father, make us faithful witnesses, faithful witnesses to the good news, to the hopeful news of your son Jesus, in whose saving name we pray. Amen.